but I've got a good accomplice with whom to tackle this week's talking points. Chris Cook from The Guardian. Here we go. Post-COVID crowds to kick us off, Chris. October the 1st, it looks like, for most sport to get at what we would call a proper crowd after the trial fixtures. Yeah. Okay, how are you feeling about it? I mean, even October... Well, look, we would take it in the situation we're in, but, I mean, when you go back to the start of all this, you know, the Cheltenham Festival, and we were thinking about, you know, the beginnings of lockdown, you would really have hoped that by the time we get to the start of the next jump season we could have put it all behind us and evidently that's not going to be possible because um, these crowds that will be allowed from the 1st of October will still have to be under some kind of restriction. We don't know exactly what yet. There's still some time and space for things to improve but we're thinking social distancing, you know, reduced capacity limits, Possibly masks, mask wearing. Certainly think, inside mask wearing. Yeah, I would think very likely and uh, you know, the British population has evidently been quite resistant to the idea of wearing masks and you see lots of people on Twitter foaming at the idea. Um, but I think possibly by then we might have had to get used to the idea a bit more and, and, and maybe it'll just become more like the norm of people carrying the masks around in their pockets with them, like yeah, as I'm doing today, because, you know, you, you, you want to show respect for other people. Um, yeah. You know, if you ever end up going into a shop. It's um, not about you, that's the point. Uh, that's exactly it. You don't wear it for yourself, you wear it for everybody else. Um, and you can't know what risks you may be taking or, or forcing upon them. Um, so it's, it's going to be a very different thing. But, uh, you know, at least the, the, the number one thing is getting people back through the gates and giving them the confidence that they can come to the races and be safe and have a good time and, you know, start to get things going again. It's been quite noticeable to me just in the last week or two that race courses, when you're there as working as, as part of the media, they are being much stricter about making sure you're observing the social distancing protocols even than they were when there was hardly anybody there. Now there's a few people around. Right. The 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 protocols are being observed more more stringently. You know, I was asked a couple of times yesterday to make sure that I was observing, you know, the the 2 meter rule rather well, than just you, the 1 you were, meter plus. You were rule. being a bad boy, were you? Or, you oh, I don't think I was. Now. I was just being reminded that because obviously where we broadcast you know, you're, you're looking at one monitor, right. so you end up just kind of edging closer together. It's, it's sensible, and I remember that first day at Epsom for the Derby, they had the doors open all over the grandstand. It was quite a cold day. I was freezing to death. You know, it, was, it reminded me of being back at Kelso that time that Zaynor got beat. So they're, they're taking <laughs> extreme on. measures to make sure that um, everything goes smoothly. Right, one meeting per day. This pertains to the jockeys. Now, this has been discussed a lot this week by me, by Chris, by everybody, but I think we need to just put a button on this and, and, and try and work out whether it's feasible beyond this artificial period yeah. of emergency COVID fixture list. If we go back to something approximating a normal fixture list where you have six and seven race cards, can you restrict jockeys to one meeting a day? That's got to be the question, hasn't it? I think, I mean, we could still have a discussion about what is the ideal size of a card. I mean, I, I don't know if it's necessarily... Uh, taken for granted that we'll go back to sort of six or seven. Mm. I think the nine or ten has been quite successful. Um, anyway, if you reduce it back to what it was, obviously that makes the one meeting a day less attractive. The jockeys are going to be surveyed, you know, and uh, uh, you'll have to have, I think, a majority of, of the profession in favour of this new restriction before you could make a, a significant change like that on a permanent basis. And, you know, I don't think a, a Brexit-style 52-48 result would, would do it. You know, it would have to be a, a significant majority um, in favour. When you, you consider it, it's, it's, a, it's a real restriction. You know, people are giving up um, a lot of potential earnings, you know, especially the guys at the top end of the, 
the table. They would very much like to be able to go to Newbury for the afternoon and then somewhere else in the evening if, they, if it so happens that the retainer has got good horses at both venues. They're not asking to ride in every race. They want the flexibility to just ride the good horses. Um, so do you simply put, at the moment we're capped at nine meetings a week in normal times, yeah. do you then just put a cap on the amount of races you can ride in one week? Well, I say mean, that you can't ride in more than, I'm not going to do the maths now, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, that would be a new branch of the discussion. Uh, we'd have to hear how jockeys felt about that. I think the travel is a significant aspect of this, the fact that people are under pressure to, to be at you know, whatever meeting and then get in a car and get to the next track faster than Google Maps really thinks is feasible um, in order to weigh in for the first ride there. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not the jockeys who are necessarily agitating to have that potential. It would be their owners. And as long as jockeys are not restricted in terms of the rights that they can accept or the number of meetings they can ride at, their employers are going to be saying, well, we want you there and then we want you there. So See, at the moment, we're operating in a controlled environment, a controlled environment which has a degree of centralization to yeah. the fixture list. Well, that's not going to persist. No matter whether people think it's the ideal world, it is not going to persist because it has been ruled by the court that it's anti-competitive. Right. Um, well, uh, if, if the jockeys collectively decide that this is a good idea, then and I guess that's what will happen. Um, but it, it will take that for a change to happen on a permanent basis. Adam Waterworth, the MD of Goodwood, will be along shortly. I'm going to be asking him about what is the ideal size for a card. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten races, I wonder. Media, media rights income. Should it be disclosed to the horsemen so everybody knows what the media rights companies are generating for their racecourse partners? I mean, I, the straightforward answer has got to be yes, doesn't it? Um, I mean, we're in a time of crisis. Um, and so, hey, can I use a homely analogy? I've, I've yeah. been reading a, a book to my little girl uh, called Emile and the Detectives, where a bunch of 10-year-old boys in Berlin in 1929 catch a thief, and they succeed by being very well organized, but also completely cooperative. Um, and the first thing they do is they take all the money out of their pockets, and they use that for their expenses. And, and whoever's got access to food goes home and brings it to feed everybody else. So that's where I think horse racing is. You know, we're in a time of crisis. It's not normal times at all. Um, and everybody around the table has got to show their hands, show their cards, empty their pockets, as it were. Let's find out who's got access to what money. Um, and then that will give us the chance to sort of reorganize, maybe only on a temporary basis, just to sort of see if we can get through this crisis without losing too many more of the advance. You know, um, you could say that maybe this coronavirus crisis is not an existential threat to the whole of the sport, but it surely is. Um, an immediate threat to lots of the little businesses on which the sports health depends. Um, and so I think, you know, transparency about income is the very least that, that all the sort of parts of the sport can expect so that we can have that honest discussion about how best to proceed. And it's got to be stress. Media rights income is a good thing. It is generating Terrific. money for the sport. You know, c companies like the parent company of, of this station, Racecourse Media Group, and the parent company of uh, of the revenue generator for the ARC racecourses, they are making money for their racecourse partners. It is then up to the racecourse partners, all of whom have different business models, yeah. to distribute it as they see fit. And that's where the issue comes, because they've all got different aspirations and business models. I mean, this has traditionally been the problem with, with really all of horse racing. You know, there's so many different factions and everybody sits in their own little territory and fights their corner and shouts at everybody else. But we've got to get over that and leave those days behind. That's why it's so important for us to find out who's going to be the next, next chief executive of the BHA. <laughs> Nicely done. that person is going to have to be a very skilled politician to, to lead us out of this crisis in anything like one piece.
Yes, I wonder when we will find out. Well, I think we were expecting an answer by now, perhaps um, this time next week. Uh, horse names, this has come up a couple of times in the, in the last few days. There was a Garitis, wasn't there? Uh, Garitis running. running today. In, Isn't um, Garitis running today? Yeah, in the first at York, I think. And the original Garitis was the world's most disappointing horse, wasn't he? Trained by Dick Hearn. Well, eventually. I mean, he started by being one of the, one of the world's most exciting horses when he won the Acom and the Champagne Stakes uh-huh. by an absolute barrel load, and he was going to be the next big thing. And then ended and up not being. Flopped in the Dewhurst, and, and, and people were saying, was he doped? Or? So, I mean, in that, you, you got me with one yesterday, which I'd forgotten, Jacinth. Jacinth, yes. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't want you to think that I remember the original Jacinth. Um, because she won the coronation stakes in the year I was born. Um, and I think the year before that, uh, I'm going by what somebody, a historian, posted on um, my blog this morning. Um, she was the champion two-year-old, I think, and one other big race. Okay, so this is, this is to do with to what extent should we be allowed to replicate well-known horses' names from the past and where the line gets drawn. I mean, I, I think when it comes to a horse like Garitis, I'm surprised that anybody wants to sort of replicate that name because you're sort of inviting disaster, aren't you? Yeah. Um, it's not the most positive association. Um, I, I tend to think that this is really a self-regulating thing. I'm not asking for new rules to come in, but it's, it, in a way it's sort of entertaining to me that whenever one of these comes along, you get people on Twitter you know, going absolutely mad that somebody else is sort of copying um, really part of the sport's historic fabric. Um, and uh, maybe to an extent it, it shows that, that we don't have enough respect for the sport's history, that we don't play those videos of the old races as much as we could or should. Um, you know, because uh, a horse like Jacinth, as you say, you know, it won't mean much to anybody. But really, if uh, you know, if we were watching old Coronation Stakes, old Royal Ascot races, as much as we should be, and being told those old stories, um, then there'd be a greater respect, and I think a, probably a reluctance to reuse those old names. Um, there, there is a list of protected names. You win certain races, then your name can't be used again in this country. Um, but it's not a very extensive list, and you're always bumping up against examples of horses that are really treasured by people. I mean, I wouldn't want to see another Amrala or a Sulabula or a Dishcloth, but you know, I don't suppose there any was a, of them... Do you know there was a second Volcatini? I mean, that is a disgrace, isn't well, it? Why would you, though? I mean, I who, who wants to own another horse like Volcatini? Maybe well, it's a privilege. I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind on the good days. Right. Um, let's talk about a man who, who sadly died this week, who... Uh, had a, a couple of very good horses, one of whom um, was the subject of one of the most painful disqualifications that the sport can remember, Noel Martin. Um, Chris, you must have spoken to Noel Martin in, in your yeah. career as a, as a writer. Just explain exactly the adversity that he had to overcome, for those who weren't familiar. Well, I mean, he was a builder who was working in Germany. He's a, a British guy, um, and some neo-Nazis, I think it was, they threw a concrete block through his windscreen of his mm. car while he was driving. Um, so he um, crashed, and he was, he was left a quadriplegic. Um, but, I mean, you know, really no self-pity at all. Um, and um, his, his wife, you know, his beloved wife died of cancer, I mean, about 20 years ago, I think. And this, is, this is Jacqueline. Yeah, and he, so he named Jacqueline Quest after her. Um, and then, so I, I wasn't really around in the days when Badam, I think, won twice in the same Royal Ascot yeah. in his colours. Um, my first introduction to this story was when we all found ourselves in the winner's enclosure at Newmarket after the 1,000 guineas. 
um, and he was telling us this extraordinary story. He named the horse after his wife, and all that. Sixty-six to one. Uh, yes, all that he'd been through, and Henry Cecil had been a huge hero for him when he was much younger, and and watching the the races, you know, as a builder without the money to sort of invest in horses. And here he was with this Henry Cecil trained horse in the winner's enclosure. And we were also moved by it and we were getting ready to write our stories. And bing, bong, you know, the stewards um, changed the result. And I mean, look, objectively, if you look at the replay, there's, there's no argument about it, you know. Um, uh, it, it, changing it was the right thing to do in purely racing terms, but in terms of, you know, a wider sense of justice. Okay. There was a man who absolutely deserved a classic win. Um, and I think she went on to sort of be quite a good broodmare. She has been. Um, she's bred Line of Duty, who right. was the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf winner, and she's bred Onassis, who was the Royal Ascot winner this year. So, so I mean, he he survived in time to sort of see all of that and take mm. pleasure from it. But um, I mean, there's no no doubt that you know life was extremely difficult for him, and he, you know, yet he bore up amazingly well. And racing was always a sort of huge solace to him, a huge source of comfort. It was it was an enormous effort for him to go to the races, um, you know, in the condition that he was in. But, you know, he was willing to make that effort, you know, for the big days and, and got, got a lot out of it. Yeah. People who came into contact with him who knew him well were incredibly moved and touched by his, his fortitude, I think. Yeah, exactly the word, yeah. Noel Martin, who, who died this week. Let's talk about Enable because she goes to the King Jewel. So she will dominate headlines every day now until she, she has to run on... On Saturday, it's opened up a little bit for her, Chris, but not completely. I, there's no Gaia yeah. and there's no love for the moment, but there are some pretty good horses waiting for her. Yeah, I mean, I think Japan is interesting. You know, he's going to build on what we've seen from him so far. Um, maybe or if, if he turns up, it could be magical from that yard. You, you just don't know yet. Or both. Um, I, I think we'll get more than one from the yard. That's their way of doing things. Um, what about Serpentine? Uh, <laughs> could he bowl up? Well, if he does, it's going to be a very different test for him. But, I mean, you know, any horse, a, a classic winner that's getting that three-year-old allowance is interesting in a mm. King George. Um, and, but what makes this race really interesting is the fact that she just hasn't come out and done her, her usual dominant thing. Any defeat for her is pretty rare. Um, and so uh, John Gosden forewarned us before the eclipse that she wasn't going to be at her absolute peak. But, you know, it, a lot of people were a bit surprised and a bit troubled that... Um, she didn't get a bit closer to Gaeth that day. The interesting thing is that since her amazing three-year-old campaign when she was winning races by five and seven lengths, yeah. all her victories have been hard fought, which has won her, of course, a, a legion of admirers, and she's been brilliantly placed and trained. But there's such a, such a fine line now between her winning the King George, the Yorkshire Oaks and the Ark, or whatever you, the race in between is, or whatever, and not winning another race. The line is so fine between those two scenarios. I mean, I think... She's probably got a bit more professional, and she? she's certainly got a bit more clever as she got older. So maybe she's not winning her races by large margin, partly because of that. But then you get a result like last year's King George when she beats Crystal Ocean was at a neck, mm. and you think, well, the Phillies allowance yeah. made the difference there. That's what I mean. Um, uh, well, look, if she wins this King George, she's the first to win three, and that's a huge deal um, because I, it, the race hasn't always had the respect that I think it deserves in recent years but it's, it's a huge race extremely difficult to win ah. um, and you know she, that, that's her mark in history forever she wins three of these and I, I'm going to get hated for saying this but and I realise that the third arc is the reason she was kept in training but if she won the King George I wouldn't blame them if they drew stumps with it I really wouldn't well I, no I guess I'd not end, end that would high. be a pity but, but 
and people will hate me for saying it, and I and I love the fact that she's been kept in training, and exactly. I love horses racing. But that, you know, how far do you go? I, I hope they don't retire in the winners' enclosure. I mean, they that won't. would be pretty deflating. They won't because the they want to win the arc. That's why they right. That's what. But I think it's going to be so hard to win the arc this year. Yes, it will, and and that's, so that's why it'll be. Um, it, you know, she adds so much to that race, and it will be a terrific end for our season and for her career. Let's talk about the interference rules because um, you and I have both given these an airing this week, prompted by um, Kevin Blake initially on the At the Races yeah. website, who, who got his dossier together and, and uh, issued it and asked the question: Do these rules need need changing? Is it, are the jockeys essentially doing what they like in Ireland and and in England, and do they need tightening up? The, the BHA usefully pointed out that um, interference uh, breaches are down by a third, I think it was, in ten years. Yeah. You have to be clear, what are we measuring there? Are the, we... the other thing they pointed out to me, which I was quite surprised about, that there were 31 incidents of disqualification on yeah. the basis of interference since the, I think the beginning of 2019. Yeah, I would never have guessed it would be that high. Nor me. Um, and, I, and I don't really want lots more disqualifications, but I do also really want jockeys and horses to be safe. Um, we have a very competitive sport in this country for, for which we can be grateful, um, and jockeys are always going to sort of push right up to the line, and then inevitably some of them will go past it. But that's why I think we, we really want stewards. I think the rules are in place. It's not a case for the BHA to invent more rules. We, we need stewards to police interference very, very closely, and I think they could, they could do more than they're currently doing. Um, again, I, I hate to say to be one of these people that says hitting jockeys harder is the answer to everything. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I've suggested is maybe when a jockey gets done for interference, you could spread that penalty to the owners and trainers as a means of them getting them on side and getting them to tell jockeys, you know, respect the interference rules. But so we had Aidan O'Brien um, talk to me this week. Yes, now you did a very good job here. You got some, you got some lovely quotes. Well, out of it, it all came from him, and he obviously wanted to speak on the subject. Uh, he felt really strongly about the situation um, in, in Ireland, Ireland, both him and Kevin. See, so. I, I'm not sure that the two countries are the same here. I don't think that they have exactly the same. Well, uh, Kevin knows Irish racing, and, and you, God knows you've got to respect that, and he sees more of this happening in Ireland than in Britain. But, uh, and, and, but Aidan, with him, I think, to some extent, he was being polite. He's a visitor in England, and he, he doesn't want to offend people. He did bring up particular races that have happened in this country recently that, that he wasn't happy about. So I, I don't think there's any cause for complacency here. Um, we have to make sure that people are safe, uh, and it has to be made clear to jockeys that you know when you've just gone past your main rival, you can't just cut in front of them um, and then their challenge at that point. You know, all jockeys have to feel that they they should be giving each other appropriate room to make sure that everyone comes back safely at the end of the day. Those were this week's talking points.